Let me introduce myself to you again. My name is Kyle, and this is Uplift, and I'm so glad that you are here. I want to let you know that this message will also be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching us online on Sundays, uh, so glad that you're watching us. Log into the chat and say hi. We are in a uh, five-week series. This is the second week of that here at Uplift called A Fresh Perspective. It's a five-week series through the New Testament book of Philippians. I have one aim for this series, and it's this, to learn from Paul's perspective writing this letter while he was in jail. He wrote it to the believers in Philippi, and I think there's a lot to be learned, especially as we ride the momentum of the new year uh, to align or even realign our perspective. So that's kind of what we're doing in Philippians. I'm going to tell you this, we're going to jump right in. His perspective really in Philippians, and really the reason why he wrote this book was to encourage the Philippians to stand strong in their suffering. It's all right there. And he gives a prescription for how to do that. And it's rich and it's meaty and it's robust, but it's not, it's not always liked. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. In Philippians Chapter 1, verse 28, Paul told the Philippian believers to not be frightened. Like that's an interesting phrase. Don't be frightened by your opponents. This is from a guy who's in jail, by the way. And then he follows that up with his prescription for bravery. This is the first of several passages we're going to read here. This is from Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. So this is his prescription for bravery. This is what what he wrote. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind and of the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant selves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, this is his prescription and his prescription for bravery. One word, unity. Now, Paul did not describe some revolutionary experience here. He knew, he knew that people become more formidable when the holes are filled, when the communication is thorough, when everybody's on the same page. In fact, there are four principal parts of this prescription. It's all in verse two. Look at it. We've got a slide for you. Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord, be of one mind. Four different ways of saying the same thing. And it's unity. Believers are bound together here by the same love. And it's, it's, that's critical because they're not bound together by ethnicity or neighborhoods or income levels. It's a key point. Be of the same mind of full accord of one mind all together in love. But here's why this prescription isn't always liked. It's not always liked because it's primarily a defensive posture. That's what it is. It's how to thwart attacks, but not launch them. In fact, in this book, Paul wrote nothing about going on the offensive, nothing about attacking or hurting someone else. In order for them to not be afraid of their opponents, they were to be together, a family, a tight-knit group. It's what a good church is, together. But you and I both know that our basest instinct is to attack. We like attacking. We like pushing back 
Because attacking, we presume, is a way we can get back some of our lost territory. So, and this is a rather long introduction, but here's the point. To make sure that his point is heard, Paul gives us, he writes for us, what is perhaps one of the most valuable writings in all of Scripture. It's the passage known by most as the Christ hymn, and it's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's actually printed on your outline. And it is in this passage where Paul describes how unity is to be gained and established. Now, I want you to remember Paul's specifics for unity. Be of the same mind. Be of one mind, of the same love and full accord. So here's how he defines how to do those things. This is the Christ hymn, chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's like the words just come right off the page. Be of the same mind, he wrote. Be of one mind, but here he says, be of this mind, of the mind of Christ, who it seems had a one-track mind, one purpose, one purpose. Now, it's important to remember here, because we're going to kind of detail this in a minute, that Paul's entire point of this section is to promote unity against attacks. Now, I don't want us to lose that. I don't want us to lose that. But I think we have to pull from this text exactly what it means about Jesus. So we're going to talk about Jesus for a few minutes, but I don't want us to lose the point that this mind, this mind of Jesus that's to be ours is explained in one central way, that Jesus chose self-humiliation. That's what he chose. So what I want to do over the next few minutes is I want us to walk through Jesus's action of emptying himself. We've got two aims. One of them has some theological applications to it. We're going to talk about that. And then following that, we're going to have some practical applications to what this passage says. The theological applications are going to help us, right? They're going to help us, God willing to think rightly about Jesus. That's what they're there for. And the practical applications here, I think are going to help us think about Paul's reason for including this passage here and what it means for us. So let's again read the mind of Christ, of Jesus, his one-track mind from verses 6 through 8. We're going to read it again. Who, though he was in the form of God, now this is the mind of Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. Theologically, this passage says four things about Jesus. Four things. Here they are. These are big. First, Jesus existed outside of his human nature in the form of God. This is a statement of position, of identity. Jesus, as the form of God, was the very form of God to those who saw him with their own eyes. You look at Jesus, who do you see? You see God. Outside of human existence, Jesus existed only one way. In the form of God in a place the Bible calls heaven. A non-worldly, non-created place. The Son, Jesus, existed there with the Father, with God, before creation. That's the first thing, the first theological point about Jesus here. Here's the second. His existence outside of human nature was not something to be grasped. Not something to be grasped. His form was not a thing to hold on to. He did not consider his form something he would never relinquish. He didn't grip his position as God so tightly that he would never let it go. Thus, he emptied himself. That's what Paul writes. He didn't empty himself of divinity, though. He never stopped being divine. But he did empty himself of the privilege of not being human. That's what he emptied himself of, of not experiencing our own human limits and frustrations in a world outside the Garden of Eden. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing. He took the form of a slave. Let's unpack this for a minute. Outside of human nature, before he became human, Jesus existed in the form of God. But once he adopted human nature, once he became human, he took the form of a slave. You see the language? He was the form of God before he was human. Once he became human, he was the form of a slave. Same word, same word in both phrases. Now, the Gospels tell us that Jesus wasn't literally a slave, but the story of his life attests that he did adopt the primary characteristics of a slave. He became a person without advantage, solely dependent upon the mechanics of humanity. There was nothing special about him. He was born into a family of refugees, the lowest of the most powerful empire in the world. He took the form of a slave. And I want you to notice too here that he was born. He was born. His humanity had a beginning. But in verse 6, he just was. He just was. These two verses, they contrast the experiences, these two experiences of Jesus. He was the God at the burning bush, the I am that I am. But at his birth, he was a slave. Here's the fourth thing we, we learn theologically about Jesus. His obedience led to death. Now this death was the death of a criminal. It was the death of a terrorist. He didn't strive to achieve the greatest successes available. He endured this type of death to show the magnitude of his emptying of his very nature, of his mind. Now, theologically, those are big truths, right? It's good to have a refresher. As astounding as it is, I want you to listen to this. As astounding as it is, Jesus, as the form of God, 
thought that sharing our experiences and our existence was worth his exodus from heaven. He let go of that status. He emptied himself. He didn't grasp it. He relinquished it on purpose, on purpose. I can't imagine. How many times have you been frustrated today? Jesus opted for frustration rather than heaven. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And what he did was he purposefully chose to endure these experiences. I got two of them for you. There are probably more, but I think these two kind of sum up exactly what Jesus chose over heaven. I think the first thing is he chose to experience injustice. We live in an experience of injustice and Jesus chose to experience that. I want to show you a book here. It's written by Todd Miller. Todd Miller is a noted journalist who has reported from international borders for 20 years. He wrote this book called Build Bridges, Not Walls. It's a fascinating book. It's fascinating. Written a couple years ago. His whole book, the whole premise of his book is this. It's a, it's a question, and this is the question. What happens to our collective humanity when the impulse to help one another is criminalized? It's a big question. What happens to us? Who are we really if helping someone makes us a criminal? That's the point of him writing this book. He sets up this question by beginning his book with a personal story of meeting a man named Juan Carlos. He met Juan Carlos in Arizona, and he met Juan Carlos 20 miles north of the American-Mexican border. Actually, just a few miles from the edge of the Sonoran Desert. It was night when he met Juan Carlos. Juan Carlos was alone. Miller learned in his communication with Juan Carlos that Juan Carlos was a refugee from Guatemala, and he was an illegal alien in the United States. And he asked Todd Miller for a ride to the nearest town. Now, Todd Miller knew the ramifications of that question. And he knew that giving Juan Carlos a ride would be illegal because it would further Juan Carlos's unauthorized presence in the United States. He knew there were drones watching him. He knew that border patrol agents could see him from miles away. He knew, Todd Miller knew, that he could be charged with a felony for, as he writes in his book, showing kindness to a stranger. This is a quote from his first chapter. Miller continues this, but wouldn't it be a crime to leave somebody there, knowing that doing so could lead to their death? And would it refusing to help a person in distress due to their ethnicity be racism of the most blatant kind. This sort of racism is encoded, he writes, into the very concept of border security and its regime of agents and technologies and policies and bureaucracies and violent vigilantes. With no sign of any nearby town, he wrote, I am forced to contemplate one's skin complexion his disheveled clothes, and his Spanish-only speech. And I'm telling you this story for one reason, only one reason. Because it highlights an incredible 
injustice without easy solutions. It just does. We live in a world full of injustice. And sometimes that le- those levels of injustice, those, that, th- that injustice has levels of complexity. You and I know that people aren't always cared for. People aren't always defended. This is one of a million stories we could share. But I want you to know that it was this experience that Jesus opted for. This is what he wanted when he became a human. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself and he chose this experience over heaven. Himself, the victim of injustice. He chose it. I told you there too, there is another experience of this life that Jesus chose, and it's the experience of celebrated sin. You and I, we live in an age of celebrated sin, and Jesus wanted, he wanted, he wanted to endure that, to experience that. I want to show you an image. Many of you are probably familiar with this flag. It's called the pride flag probably seen it before. It's the LGBTQIA plus rainbow flag. Now this is a recent update by graphic designer Daniel, Daniel Quasar. And he updated the flag was, had several incarnations. This is the, the latest, but he updated it for a specific reason to place what he says an even greater emphasis on inclusion and progression. Those are his words, inclusion and progression. The redesigned flag now represents the transgender movement and the marginalized LGBTQ communities of color. Whereas before it was only the colors of the rainbow meant to draw attention to the LGBTQ community. Daniel Quasar, though, felt it needed to be redesigned. And this is a quote. This is what he said. I want you to listen to this. We still have forward movement to make. There is still work to be done, and I wanted to highlight that. Now we believe, and I believe this, First Colony believes this. We believe that the Bible teaches that honorable sexual relationships are found only in monogamous heterosexual relationships. That those are the relationships which glorify God and his intended design for creation. I want you to hear that. I don't, I don't want you to be mistaken. I want you to hear that. But I also wanted to show you this flag. And I wanted to make one observation here, just one. That according to the designer, this flag stands for a world where everybody belongs and nobody is offended. Really though, it stands for celebrated, dishonorable, lifestyles that are completely and fully accepted. And this is called progress. This kind of progress is really just Satan's parody of a world, of an existence much greater, much purer, of the heaven that Jesus left, of the heaven from which Jesus emptied himself. The heaven focused not on individual wants and desires, but focused on the God 
of all creation and his holiness. It's the heaven that's described here in Revelation chapter 21. I want to show you this. That's what John wrote. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. Look at that. No more divisions. This this is no more divisions, right? That's, this is what he's talking about. By this light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. It's not forced. It's not legislated behavior with the power of a flag. It's the power of God breaking down these walls. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into this city the glory and the honor of the nations. Again, no distinctions. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You and I, we are watching in real time a general forced movement to create heaven here all the while ignoring the reality that this is a fallen place in need of renovation. In fact, just a few sentences earlier in Revelation, John wrote this from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. Do you realize the magnitude of that kind of statement? The earth and the sky fled from the presence of God. Fled. Creation, you know what this means? It means creation lives in a state of dishonor. It can't remain in the presence of a holy God. And it is this dishonor that is being peddled as the pinnacle of our existence. It's really no surprise though. It's really no surprise. All of the kingdoms, the divisions, the opinions, you know this, they're all under the control of Satan. Satan admits it as much from in Luke chapter four, when he's tempting Jesus, look at this. And the devil, Luke chapter four, verse five, and the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, all those nations, right? In Revelation, no distinctions, right? But here they are. You see what's going on. Satan has created this. Look what he says. To you I give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan is saying, I am in charge of this place and I like the divisions and I like people wondering if they can remake this place. I'm going to give it to you. He fostered them, but God breaks them. He breaks them. Jesus, as God himself, knew that we would as sheep follow the distinctions. We would appreciate and love these boundaries. So I want you to listen to this. So when Jesus' infinite wisdom and planning, before creation was ever spoken into existence, he made a conscious choice and he chose 
to empty himself and place himself at the mercy of our wretched race of creation. He left it all to be like us. This is the Jesus we worship. The one who says, I'm going to get down in the dirt with you. I'm going to feel what you feel because that's the only way I can save you. That is the theological application of this passage. But here's the practical application. And this is good. This is the mind that Paul encourages us to have. This mind, this mind of Christ, it's a mind that sees the world for what it is, that we're not, we're not duped into seeing it as people want it to be. We see it how it is. For what it is instead of the heaven that it can never be. If it were possible for us by our own will to make our lives perfect and without hurt and without suffering, there'd be no need for Jesus. This is the mind we're to have. This mind frames our response to suffering. We know that the world has fallen and it will not be repaired until the return of Jesus. We know that. But here's the other practical application here. Paul encourages us to adopt the mind of Christ, which also sees the world as a place worth saving. Having the mind of Christ softens our anger and our responses, and it opens us up to have compassion on a place and a people who desperately need to know Jesus. This is the mind of Christ. Now, I can't close, though, without briefly commenting on the second half of this hymn. So let's read this again. Let's read the second half. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Just a few comments here. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to look at these astounding, there's four things, these astounding things that happened to Jesus. He was exalted. He was given the name Lord. Every knee will bow to Jesus, and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. But there's one specific thing here you have to notice, and it's in verse 9. And if you have real, a real Bible, if you're on U version, you need to underline this. It's one word. It's the word, therefore. I want you to look at this again, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Jesus's exaltation was not a reward. That's what the word therefore means. He didn't earn the title. He didn't work for it. His title isn't transactional. It was a consequence of his choice to enter the jaded existence of humanity. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of me and he's Lord of you. And he's Lord of those who dishonor him and profane him and of those who celebrate and pursue him. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the one with a one-track mind to save the world, and it's the mind that we're to have. And amen for that.